0: So to begin this morning, I want to talk to you about the difference between obligation and desire, how I've seen this play out in my life recently, as many of you know, until recently when I started my woodworking journey, so for 99.97% of my life, uh, going to a home store like Lowe's or Home Depot was something I never looked forward to, because uh, I'd have to go for something for the house or something for the church, and the first 15 seconds you walk in there, and it's just it smells like pure manhood. So that part is great. <laughs> And womanhood, too, if you build stuff, that's fine. But just, you know, it's just like, I'm a man. And uh, quickly that fades because then I realize I don't know what I'm looking for or where it is. And as a man, you can't ask for help, right? And so I'm walking, and it's taking me 30 minutes. And here's the thing. It's one thing to ask for help if you're trying to find something that's like, oh, you, my friend, are, like, special, Right? Like trying to find like a really unique plumbing part or a certain type of uh, saw or tool that's like really unique to like certain projects, and it's like, hey, where this is, and the people that work there be like, man, this guy knows what he's doing. My problem is, is I'm looking for light bulbs or tape. Or some nails, right? It ain't anything worth asking for, right? And so I'd always go, and if something broke, and I'm like, I have to go, I don't know where anything is, it's going to take me forever, and it just was not fun for me, right? Until recently, a couple of months ago, I started uh, getting into woodworking, and so I've made a lot of trips since then, and I have really enjoyed it. And I really experienced this contrast a couple of weeks ago. Because I have a thing called a budget, so you can't like buy all the stuff that you want, right? It takes, takes a while. And so a couple of weeks ago, something on our deck in our house was broken and needed fixing. And in order to fix it, I had to go to Lowe's to buy the thing to fix it. And in that moment, for the first time in my life, instead of being like, oh, this is how I felt. That, that was, this was me, right? <laughs> Why? Because I got to spend money that was already in the budget for the house I got to go to the the, the lows or whatever and I do, I was so excited right there was a shift of no longer. Do I have to go to Lowe's or Home Depot because I have to get something? But it's like I get to go and I get to spend money and I get to look at these things and I get to actually like walk in and go exactly know where, where I'm going. I don't have to ask for help, right? I mean, it's just it's awesome. Or if I want to feel cool, I like look up this obscure tool just to ask them where it is, you know, just to see the reaction. Right? It's it's awesome, right? I've gone from obligation. I have to go there to this is exciting. I actually want to go there. Now, I share that because today, as we're continuing in 1 Thessalonians, uh, we have seen one of the main themes in this book is Paul's writing to the church in modern-day Greece around 50 AD, and one of the, the main themes of this book is that you and I, if you are a follower of Christ, that our faith should, should play out in how we live. That following Jesus is not just believing the right things, but impacts how you and I live and treat other people. That our faith should actually, you know, have legs to it. And so the question for us is, if you are a follower of Jesus and you want your faith to move you, how do you move from obligation, I got to be faithful, I need to do the right thing, to desire, to I want to be faithful, I want to do the right thing. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians. If you do not, there is a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. This is our last week uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Where we're, again, we're wrapping this up. Um, again, the last couple of weeks, Paul has specifically been addressing the concerns of the Thessalonians in return in regards to when Jesus is going to return. Uh, so there was some confusion or some anxiety about those who had already died, when Christ returned, would they take part in his kingdom? And Paul was saying, yes, somehow, some way, all of us will see Christ when He returns. Uh, and then last week he was talking about, when is this return actually going to happen? And Paul repeats the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 that says, "It's going to be like a thief in the night. Uh, so none of us have any idea uh, when it's going to happen. And so what we said last week is that if you want to be ready for the return of Christ, then you simply need to be faithful. So whether you die or whether Christ returns, whatever comes first, for those of us that are followers of him, faithfulness looks like honoring and loving people. That is how we would prepare for Christ's return. And so with that, here's how he ends 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. He writes this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. And to regard them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among. Yourself. So what Paul does here is what he occasionally does in some of his letters in the New Testament, where he encourages the Thessalonian believers to respect and honor their leaders. Likely, he's specifically talking about their elders here, those who are leading the church, uh, leading the charge in terms, in terms of faithfulness and a culture. And so he says, respect them, honor them if, where honor is due. And he says, be at peace among yourself. Uh, that could be in reference to the leaders, or just it could be in reference to one another, to live peacefully, uh, to live faithfully. That's the goal here is to love others, live peacefully, serve others. And, And what you don't want to do is what he says next in verse 14. He continues by saying, And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak. Again, be patient. Now, this word idle here is the Greek word etaktos, which literally means uh, disorderly or disruptive or undisciplined. Uh, Basically, it's the opposite of a peace seeker. It's someone who's out for themselves or is doing whatever they want to do who is undisciplined. Or it could even be someone who's not doing things. And we know this because in 2 Thessalonians, one of the things that Paul writes to them about is about the believers among them who were kind of being lazy and weren't contributing in ways that they should have. And so don't be like that. Don't be divisive. That is not how we are called to live. Instead, we are to comfort the discouraged, we are to help those in need, and we are to be patient and peace seekers among one another. Uh, In other words, you could kind of maybe wrap up what Paul is saying here throughout the book of Thessalonians this way, that faith is a verb. Faith is a verb. Faith, again, is not something you intellectually think about, but it actually moves us to action. If you are a follower of Christ and have been transformed by his grace and his mercy and his love, then it changes your desires and your and how you live your life and it changes what you would do. And so faith moves us to action. Now to be clear, you have to get the order right. It is not action that moves us to faith. It's not, I gotta be a good person and I can't lie and I can't be mean and I can't steal and if I do enough stuff, then God will love me. No, for for Paul, throughout the New Testament, is it first experience and receive God's grace and mercy and let the power of the Spirit as he changes your heart move you to action, right? Again, up until... first for me to actually be excited to go. And so faith is a verb. And again, it's not that we live it out perfectly, but we live it out uh, not out of obligation, that we're honest with our sins, that we apologize and we give grace when it's needed. But Paul is saying here that faith moves us to action. It cannot be something we simply think about or simply something we talk about, but it is something we do. And so he continues by saying this in verse 15. He says, see to it, that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So here again, he gives a list of things that sound really good, but if we're honest, are really hard, right? Not repaying evil for evil, uh, pursuing good. Again, it sounds good theoretically until you actually have to do it. Uh, rejoice always, or what he's saying there is have joy always in all uh, circumstances. Uh, be thankful that it is literally Christ, God's will for us and Jesus to be thankful no matter what is happening in our life. Now, again, this sounds great, but it's hard to do. And again, if you and I remember the context of what she is saying, that these concepts would have been uh, maybe somewhat difficult for the first for the Thessalonians to hear. Remember, they are being persecuted; uh, they are being ostracized for their faith because so much of Roman life involved uh, worship and 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 submission and sacrifices to the local deities. And so, as followers of Christ, they wouldn't do these things, and so it would ostracize them from many of the normal weekly week week to week day to day activities. And so Experiencing difficulties. So, as they read this, this is not something that just sounds good. They're thinking, man, how do I actually do this in a culture that is hostile to me? Now, to be clear, again, Paul is not saying that we should be joyful or uh, excited for pain and suffering. It's not like, yes, it's time to grieve. I'm so uh, suffering, awesome, sorrow. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying about the the good news, the good things about these difficult things is what it means for those who are actually in Christ, right? And so the question that many of us have is, how do we give thanks in everything? Like, again, sounds great, but how do you actually do that, right? Uh, And before I answer that question, I want to just say a couple of points. The first is this. It's important for us to remember, as we talk about the way that Paul is admonishing followers of Jesus to live, to remember that the blessings of Christ only apply to those who are in Christ. The blessings and the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God only applies to those who have actually received it. Now, here's why this is important to remember this. It's because I don't know how you don't repay evil for evil. I don't know how you give thanks in everything. I don't know how you pursue forgiveness and grace to people who have deeply wounded you outside of Christ. Like, I I don't know how, I mean, how do you not? Like, if this is all there is and you've got to stand up for your name and and your reputation and, and what you want and what you need and you've got to go and grab it, I do not know how you have joy in difficult times. I do not know how you can have joy in suffering. I don't know how you can be a person of forgiveness. Now, clearly, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to embody some of these things, but that is really hard to do without him. Right? To know that you are loved, that you are cared for, that you are redeemed, that in Christ you have nothing to prove and no one to impress, it actually gives you the ability to live these things out. Or maybe put another way, that none of the promises of Jesus apply to those who are outside of Jesus. Right? So forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, that even in your suffering it can be used for good. These are the promises to the people of God. Without them, it's really hard to do these things. Which is why, again, throughout Scripture, there is no expectation for those who do not know Jesus to live like they do. And so, if you and I are a follower of Christ, what we don't need to do is get on, get upset with how bad the world is and how the world does this and that. What we need to do is focus on Jesus and be His embodiment in the world around us. That we need to allow people to experience His grace and His mercy. That we need to show people Christ's love first, and then allow Christ to change their hearts, and their motivations, and their lives. And so the blessings of Christ only apply to those in Christ. And so you can only do this, like reading this, and actually live it out. We need Jesus, through the power of his Spirit, to actually do it. And and with that, I also want to mention this. As we're talking about suffering, uh, we need to remember uh, that your setback likely means that you are going to walk with a limp. And here's here's why I say this. Uh, So oftentimes, Uh, We hear of people going through hard things or difficult things, and people say, Well, it's just a setback for your comeback, right? Can I get an amen? Everyone applause. That sounds awesome. Here's the thing a lot of times, your pain and suffering is not something that you simply get over. In fact, most oftentimes, your deep pain and suffering is something that stays with you forever. So, let me give you an example. Many of you know my story, but in fact, it was 12 years ago today. Uh, that my dad died by suicide. Um, let me just tell you, you don't get over something like that. You don't come back from something like that. Uh, you don't move on from something like that, right? You move forward with the hope and grace of Christ, and you hopefully have people around you who love you and support you, and that you grieve well. But you don't get, like that stays with you forever. Right, Or many of you are also familiar with uh, my eight-year-old nephew Landon, who a couple months ago, uh, totally healthy and fine, they found out he has a brain tumor, has brain cancer, and so they removed the tumor out of his brain, uh, and then he couldn't, after surgery, he couldn't walk, talk, uh, move in, in any part of his body, uh, that was three months ago, and now he's making some progress, but he's got a syndrome that's making things really difficult, we have no idea what quality of life he's going to have at the end of this. A couple weeks ago, he finally came home in the hospital after 75 days right? This is not something that you just kind of get over, and this is not something that's like, oh, that was fine. I'm better because of it. Listen, his family will never be the same. They will never be the same because of what they are going through. And again, hopefully the churches, we're coming around and we're loving them and we're supporting them, but this will stay with them forever. And so it is with many of you. You have hardships, you have sufferings, you have difficulties in your life that is not something that you just kind of have an epic, epic comeback over. They stay with you as we go. And also, sometimes too, we have bad uh, experiences and consequences in our life because we make bad decisions and rejected God's wisdom, right? And so sometimes I hear this, it's like, oh, it's a setback for your comeback when you've done dumb stuff. And so it's not the devil holding you back, it's you, okay? Can we just be honest? <laughs> sometimes it's just you, right? And so I want to say, you're setback likely to walk with a limp, and so you're going to need somebody to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so we talk about living a certain way, and we're talking about having joy in the midst of most difficult circumstances. This all sounds good. No idea how you do it without the love of Christ. I don't know how you do it. And that is Paul's reminder here, that we don't go and live a certain way because it's just the right thing to do, although it is. We don't live a certain way just because um, it makes God love us more, because it doesn't. His love is given to us in Christ. We live in a way in response to the grace and mercy that God has given us so that other people can experience it as well. And so with that, he continues by saying this in verse 19. He's giving them, again, a couple of commands and a couple of uh, encouragements to live by. He says, don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. What he's basically saying here is that you and I should allow the Spirit to work in our lives and to convict us. Now, when he says despising prophecy here, this is not just like future predictions about what's going to happen in the world. What he's talking about here is that God's revealing an encouragement often from other people in our lives. And so we can discredit this by refusing to listen to people, by refusing to allow people to uh, speak into our lives, or you can maybe know this is happening when people ask you questions and you get like super defensive and you maybe don't want to talk about it. This is how we actually do this. And so instead of that, instead of rejecting God and what he's asking us to do, here's what we should do, verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. In other words, may he be the one that leads you into holiness and to righteousness. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. There's what he's saying here, the closing thoughts of this letter of chapter 4 and 5 and the return of Jesus and of the letter itself is that we can rest in knowing that those in Christ have nothing to fear about the return of Jesus. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to run from because we are a part of God's family. We have experienced his grace and his mercy and at his return, whether we are alive or dead. When he actually comes back, we will all be able to take part in what's happening because of his faithfulness and not our own. And so we're not living in a way of trying to earn his favor because he's already given it to us in Christ, right? In other words, when he says this, to be kept blameless, how do we actually be kept blameless and righteous and holy? What does he say? Because he who calls you is faithful. In other words, Jesus will not turn his back on you. He will not reject you. He always responds to confession and repentance in grace. He, in other words, will not let you down. Now, I know all of us probably have times and stories in our life where somebody let us down. And God, what he's saying here is God is so opposite of that. Like, let me tell you a time in my life where I was severely let down by someone who was close to me, right? So Again, as I shared with you, my dad uh, died uh, by suicide between my freshman and sophomore year in college, uh, and so that sophomore year was really difficult, and, uh, and a couple years later, I think it was my senior year of college, uh, you know, I was blogging a lot at the time, that was a thing that people did, and I don't remember exactly what the post was about, I think uh, it was about uh, God's design for sex and sexuality and human flourishing, and I don't remember what I wrote, maybe I was a jerk in it, I don't, I don't think I was a jerk in it, um, but you know, and people would comment, right? And so I get this comment from a friend of mine, and I know he was a friend of mine for a couple reasons, but one was because he said, hey, Dylan, it was like an anonymous thing. Uh, he, he basically, he said, hey, I'm your friend or I'm your good friend. I can't remember how he phrased it. And he clearly was someone who disagreed with what I said. Uh, this was a friend, a roommate of mine who was a follower of Jesus, was really invested, and then you know made some different des- decisions with his life, kind of went a different way. And so by our senior year, we weren't very close. I mean, I didn't have a problem with him. It's just that, you know, we kind of went separate uh, directions. And he clearly, uh, did not like what I had to say. And his comment was, just because your dad went and killed himself does not give you the reason to say whatever, you know, based on the things he disagreed with. Now, it was interesting to me uh, as I read that comment because I always, like, if I'm being honest, I always knew or figured because, you know, we can be nasty to each other that, that my dad's suicide would be a thing that people would use against me. Like, I, so I wasn't, that wasn't like, I was like, yeah, I'm not surprised like that. What was hard was it was a friend of mine, and um, and I'm, uh, to this day, I'm about 90 to 95, probably 95% certain of who it was, uh, and it was a guy who was my roommate my sophomore year of college, so he experienced all of this. He was there for all of the grief that I was going through, and it was a situation where I couldn't actually ask him about it or confront him about it in person because on the off chance that it wasn't him or it was him but he wasn't honest, it could completely, like, make things go bad. Or if it wasn't him, you know, understandably, he could be like, I can't believe you would assume that about me. Although, again, I'm pretty sure just because of how he worded things, I knew exactly who it was. And I remember, you know, graduation on, you know, that, you know, in May when you graduated and seeing him and giving him a hug. And I'm like, I know what you said to me, and you don't think you know what you said to me. And in that moment, it was like, man, really let down by somebody who saw, like, the deepest pits of my grief. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus will not do that. What is the gospel? That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In our weakness and in our shame, Christ came. Not to turn his back on us, not to leave us, but to do for us what we could not do for him ourselves. This is how, uh, this is why you and I can pursue joy in the, midst of di- in the midst of deep suffering and grief. Because we have a God who loves us, who cares for us, who draws near to the brokenhearted and does not abandon us. It does not abandon us. And so that being said, it's important to also remember this point that we kind of make from time to time at New City Church, especially if you're struggling with the difficulties in life and you're trying to wonder where is God and is God faithful? We also need to remember this, that God God is faithful to fulfill his promises, not our assumptions. He is faithful to to do what he said he was going to do, not what we think he's supposed to do. Right? And how many times in our life do we get upset with God for him doing not what he said he would do, but what we assumed he was supposed to do if you love him? Right, So many times in our life we assume, right, if I'm faithful, if I'm good, if I'm loving, if I care for other people, then bad things are not supposed to happen to me. Yet what we see throughout Scripture is that's not true. Right? All throughout Scripture we see the mighty men and women of God suffer. I mean, Jesus himself was crucified, and killed, right? If he didn't have enough faith in himself, and that's the reason why he suffered, then ain't none of us got hope, right? All of us will experience pain and difficulty. The Thessalonians, because of their faith, are experiencing pain and difficulty. But God is faithful to his promises. The question is, what are his promises? Well, what's interesting is that there is one place in Scripture, just one, here's a Bible trivia for you, where God actually talks about himself and his character, and who he is. Now, you might know what this is because we did a series on this you know, recently. We did this book a couple months ago. We finished it up. There's one place, every other time in Scripture, you have the writers of Scripture talking about God, his character, and who he is. You have one time, where God says who he is, who reveals who he is about himself. And it's in Exodus chapter 34. It'll be on the screen. Exodus chapter 34. The context of this is pretty amazing. This is after God had uh, delivered the Israelites out of Egypt simply because of his faithfulness, that uh, he had provided for them time and time again, uh, that he had uh, rescued them from being attacked by the Amalekites, even though they weren't ready for battle. He had provided food and water and gold and all of these things for their journey. Right Then Moses, what happens? He goes up onto Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He's gone for 40 days. People are freaking out. They don't know what to expect. And so they make a golden calf. After all God has done, they make a golden calf and they worship this calf as an idol or representation of Yahweh. He comes down the mountain. Moses does. He's furious. Of course, God is uh, understandably going to judge the people. And instead of wiping them out, what does he do? He gives them grace. Again, right? If you actually read the Exodus story, you're like, what are you doing? They don't deserve it. Until you think about your own life. And so that is the context of forgiveness and grace over and over again. And this is what God reveals himself to Moses. It says this in chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. And here's what it says. The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So how does God talk about himself here? He says that he is compassionate and he is gracious. He says that he is slow to anger, right? Kind of the opposite of what we might assume because if we were God, we would probably deal differently to us than the way he deals with us. Slow to anger. He's abounding in loyal love or faithful love and abounding in truth and ultimately the forgiver of sin, not the harbor of sin, not the pay you backer of sin, but the forgiver of sin. So again, it's this is a side note, it's always interesting to me when we create this dichotomy between the Old Testament God and Jesus of the the New Testament God, right? And we do that if we haven't actually read the Old Testament. What does it say in the Old Testament? Time and time and time again, the Israelites failed and went their own way, and he rescues them, right? In fact, the book of Judges, once they finally get into the promised land, all of the book of Judges is Israel turning their own way. And actually halfway through the book of Judges, they stop even asking for God to rescue them. And yet he does it by raising up a judge time and time again, when they don't even ask him for it because he's abounding in faithful love, loyal, compassionate, and the forgiver of sin. This is why Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh, that Jesus is God and revealed to us, that there's no dichotomy between God the Father and God the Son. It is who he is. And so, again, if you were here and we went over this passage in Exodus, I talked about fruit snacks, how my kids love fruit snacks, and how all kids love fruit snacks. They're like these little gummies that have zero fruit in them at all, but they say that so the parents feel good about buying them, right? And there's nothing worse than like having their friends over and saying, who wants? fruit snacks and not having enough fruit snacks and they have to share their fruit snacks and it's awful and how and oftentimes this is how we feel God is that he's gracious and compassionate and loving and a forgiver of sin but only a certain amount and once you've used too much of it well then he's out or maybe you haven't used too much of it but everyone else is being a jerk and being bad and so he's so busy forgiving them that they've taken your portion of his grace and what we see throughout Exodus and throughout all of Scripture is that his love is exploding with fruit snacks. It's exploding with tools from Lowe's and Home Depot and wood for all of my projects, Ready? Right? never runs out. He's faithful, compassionate, the lover of of us, abounding in loyal love, the forgiver of sins. This is who God is. And what this means for us is that he promises to be faithful, he promises to love you, he promises to give you grace and mercy, and he promises never to forsake you. He does not promise that in this life everything's going to go the way that you want it because you and I have no idea how he might use our pain and suffering to bring even more people into his kingdom. He is faithful and he is good. And so in light of that, here is how Paul ends the book of 1 Thessalonians. It says this, starting in verse 25. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. So he's talking about him, Paul, Silvanus, you know, the people who planted the church. As Paul and them pray for the Thessalonians, be sure to keep them in their prayers. Greet all of the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters in the area. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So what's happening here in verse 27 when he says, I charge you, this is Paul writing in his own hand at the end of the letter, Uh, just like pretty much all of the letters in the New Testament, they, Paul, Peter, uh, John, they wouldn't have actually written them; they would have had to describe, write them. Uh, And so he is dictating the last part by hand so that they know it is from him. And what does he do? He ends with an encouragement. He says, "May may the grace of God himself be with you. Now, what a statement. Right, and again, if you grew up in church or read the Bible, it's like God's grace. But if you think about it, like the king of the entire universe, may his grace and his love and his compassion and his slow to angerness be with us. Not because of anything we did, but because of his love and faithfulness and simply who he is towards us. And so may the grace of God himself be with you in your suffering, in your grief, in your joys, in your heartaches, and in your celebration. May his grace be with us until Christ returns. And so, in light of Paul's emphasis on right living throughout the entire book of 1 Thessalonians, here is my, how I would wrap up what he is saying, maybe one of the themes of this book, and that's this. That your faithfulness to God is a response to God's faithfulness to you. Your faithfulness to God, your honoring Him, your loving people is not because you white-knuckled it and you did it or else He is going to be angry with you. But you do it in response to his love, his compassion, his forgiver of sins, his slow to anger, his loyal and faithful love to us because of what he has done for us in Christ. And so we honor him not out of obligation, not because it's the right thing to do, not because we want him to love us more, but in response to the grace and mercy that he has shown us. And we all know what this is like, right? Whenever you hear like really good and exciting news or something awesome happens, what do you want to do? You want to tell people, not because you're told to tell people, but you want to celebrate with others. And his encouragement to us is to live in a way that reveals the grace and mercy that we have been given. We didn't earn it. We shouldn't be arrogant. We should not be a people that withhold forgiveness and grace. We should should be a people that is intentional about loving people. Why? Because this reflects who God is and his character towards us. Listen, if you try to do the things in this letter, right, right, not repaying evil for evil, being thankful, uh, being generous, even honoring God's design for sex and sexuality as we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I mean, all of that is hard in your own volition and in your own effort. But all of it is possible through the power of His Spirit as we reflect and as we lift our eyes up to Him and His grace and His mercy for us. So, if you are a follower of Christ, your faithfulness to God is not so, something you do to get Him to love you more. You do it as a response to His grace for you. And listen, if you do not yet know Jesus this morning, you need to know that you're, 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 the expectation for you is not to do any of these things that Paul is encouraging believers to do. Your invitation is to experience God's grace for yourself first and allow the power of the Spirit and God's grace and mercy to transform your life so that you as well might be faithful, not out of obligation but out of, out of response. That God is faithful to us, that he is good to us, that he is kind to us, and when we remember, reflect on that, that changes how we live. That is how we remain faithful, not because of us, but because of him.